Nick, welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast. Today we are talking about uh, modern monopolies. Uh, that is the book uh, you wrote um, together with your colleague, uh, with your colleague Alex. Um, and as the platform economy is one of my core topics, I wrote about uh, um, many, many, many articles. Your view on the on the platform economy uh, is particularly interesting uh, to me. Please uh, tell the listeners who you are and what kind of company you're working for. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm uh, Nick Johnson. I'm a managing director uh, at Appleco. Been there about nine years. The book that I wrote, Modern Monopolies, I co-authored with our CEO, Alex. Um, what we do at Appleco is one of our clients likes to call us. We are kind of the digital Sherpa for large enterprise CEO, CEOs and executives, helping them embrace these new digital business models, uh, and particularly platform business models and marketplaces being a you know a key example of that. Uh, and we, we work with them to help them figure out how they get there faster and with less risk. And in many cases, that means embracing partnerships, strategic investments, uh, and M&A with uh, you know, tech companies, tech startups, and uh, in many cases, marketplaces as well. I think Peter Thiel was it who said um, uh, you have to achieve like a monopoly online in order to um, be able to earn lots of money. Uh, look at Google, look at uh, Facebook and, and some others. Um, and today we'd like to understand this perspective a little bit more um, from a direction of retailers and brand and B2B manufacturers. But when you wrote this book in 2016, um, I think core topics have been like Google, Snapchat, and maybe Amazon. These were like the GAFA compon uh, companies already uh, back then, six years ago. Um, what was your, your initial idea writing this book? So what was different to the before Monopoly era? Yeah, and I, I think the reason we wrote the book is because we saw these this massive wave of new companies coming, and that they were going to dominate you know the modern economy. This was I say less obvious in you know twenty fifteen twenty sixteen than it seems today, uh, and that no one had really kind of uh, you know there'd been a lot of academic research done on what are called multi sided platforms, which essentially marketplaces being a type of that. Uh, but there hadn't been kind of a lot of what I would call plain English kind of explanations of like, what is this thing? Why is it taking off? Why are all these big tech companies and using this particular business model and, uh, you know, connecting the dots that these were all kind of permutations of a similar business model, which we call the platform business model. Um, the key kind of thing there is these are network businesses with network effects. You don't own all the underlying assets. As we put it in the in the book, you own the means of connection rather than the means of production to kind of use the, the 20th century phrase. So if you think of kind of the old monopolies, the classic you know, standard oils, U.S. steels, basically the reason they became monopolies, they brought up all the the production capacity and you know, very few other people could actually make the product. And if they did, the monopoly basically set and controlled the price and in many cases could force other people out of the industry. So that, that, that is kind of a what we consider top-down monopoly, basically, where you use capital, you buy up and own all the assets, they sit on your balance sheet. The difference with the kind of what we call modern monopolies, uh, these platform businesses, is that they kind of build bottom-up, meaning they build a network and they provide valuable services, content products, et cetera, to that network. Um, such that people continue to use it and it becomes a kind of natural monopoly, as economists call it, where they basically, the network effects compound over time, such that you wouldn't want to go anywhere else to use a social network other than Facebook. You wouldn't want to go to another marketplace 
other than Amazon, because that's where all the products are. There's more value there for the consumer because that's where they have the best selection, the best price. And on the seller side, that's where all the customers are. So that's where you can make the most money. And they become these kind of natural monopolies, but they do it by creating networks where they don't own all the underlying assets, but they, they own the means of connection to connect the consumer, what we typically call on the one side, and then the producer, which is whoever's creating that value, whether that's, again, you know, product, software, content. Um, you know, financial contracts. There's you know, a lot of different permutations of this platform business model. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a consumer and a producer exchanging value and the platform is the one connecting them. So I tried to describe this once for retail saying that like the old retail model, let's say it's called retail 1.0, the retailers owned all the inventory. So yep. the uh, the made order retailers, they owned the inventory in the warehouse, the brick and mortar retailers, they owned the inventories in the store. And there was a 2.0 model when like retailers tried to shift into this kind of platform game where they only owned um, 50, 60% of the stock anymore. Uh, and the rest was uh, brought in, or at least the risk was um, uh, was 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 sold by uh, by merchant. This is actually what Amazon is today. So 60% is like third-party business, 40%, 30% is is, um, is first-party business. And then uh, we have the the newest form, which are the 3.0 retailers, which for example is like Alibaba. So they they don't they don't any um, uh, inventory risk anymore. So they have don't have it on the balance sheet. They they just offering the website as a marketing portal, so to say, uh, um, and therefore able to scale much quicker. So is is this um, fitting to view, your view of modern monopoly? So is Alibaba from like a business model setup much better prepared to become a modern monopoly than for example, Amazon is? Well, I think, I think they took different routes to get there. Um, I think you've seen Alibaba over the last number of years go a little bit in the other direction, investing heavily in uh, physical storefronts, you know, opening grocery stores, logistics and things that you know, bring it in a little bit more of what we would call a linear direction as opposed to a platform direction. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Amazon came from the other vantage point. Amazon started as a traditional retailer buying and reselling products. Um, you know, originally that was physical books. Uh, then, you know, things like toys, CDs, electronics, where it's you know, pretty dominant as well today, in addition to the book space. And then, you know, everything become kind of becoming the everything store. But the, the, the Amazon model is basically break into a new market in a linear capacity as a traditional retailer, get generate demand and then open it up eventually as a marketplace. Um, and we've seen this happen. That's how Amazon started on retail. That's also how Amazon business started on the B2B side. Um, where they started as Amazon Supply, which was just Amazon selling products as a retailer or a, B- a distributor, uh, and then opening up Amazon Business today, which is you know a combined retailer and marketplace. So Am- Amazon has gotten there in a somewhat different direction, but I think both both models can be tremendously successful. And I don't think there's necessarily a one size fits all answer to say this is how you build a modern monopoly. But this question is being asked, right? So you have some clients, obviously, that uh, might um, might uh, um, see competition now from Amazon or from Google or from from whatever monopolies out there, and they also want to change their business model. And um, I've claimed in in other episodes of this podcast, there's almost no case uh, um, out there where a, a brick and mortar or mail order retailer was able to. Uh, 
um, to 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 bring back the old glory, winning back customers because uh, um, they were doomed with their old business model. So, what would you say are the success factors for existing business models to become a platform, to be, become a modern monopoly? Uh, um, are there any factors you see right now? Anything kind of a checklist you're going in your uh, uh, initial workshops, um, helping the CEOs to understand what's possible and what's not possible? Yeah, I think that there's two things we look at with our clients. One is what I would call the industry structure. So, you know, the competitive state, the the sort of nature of what they do, uh, you know, is the industry, for example, you know, one of the key factors, how fragmented is the industry? Is it super concentrated? And there's only a few players that kind of decide what you can have. And the platforms don't do well in super concentrated industries. They thrive on fragmentation. So that would be one example. And the reason for that is a lot of the times you really need to build these networks bottom up. You've got to be able to start and serve the small, the small players, the small companies, uh, you know, the, the, the people that aren't served by the status quo. And you start to build the network and then you get the kind of, you know, big competitors eventually once they can't do anything but join your network. I think the with a lot of large enterprises, the trap they fall into is think, oh, we're big. So we've got to have, you know, a few big partnerships and that's how we're going to launch a marketplace. Um, you know, you've seen Target kind of go in this direction, for example, with their their marketplace, which is, well, we're going to have, you know, we launch a marketplace. But if you look kind of under the hood, it was like, you know, a handful of partners. Walmart did the same thing when they originally launched their marketplace. It was Walmart and like three partners. And they called that the Walmart marketplace. This was in the early 20 teens. Um, so I think I think the temptation is we're big, we've got to do big partnerships, but that's not how these businesses get built because then you end up just serving a handful of partners and you don't get organic growth from the network. So for that, you've got to build bottom up. Fragmentation is a key aspect of that. Um, the other thing that we look at is what are the assets, what we call kind of the dry powder, which is not just capital that sits within the large enterprise. And how do you unlock those things and try to channel them into this new platform business or marketplace so that you can actually help it grow faster, help it overcome this kind of chicken and egg problem where you've got to get you know, the supply side and the demand side at the same time. Can you supercharge one or both of those so that you can get a lot of growth faster? Because as a large enterprise, you do have disadvantages in terms of you know, agility and speed and so on. So you have to be able to compensate for that uh, and bring your advantages to the table. And if you're not doing that, uh, which is one of the challenges we've seen a lot of large companies have is how do you do that correctly? Uh, then, then you're not going to have the you know, right to win in this space compared to you know, Amazon or other sort of up and coming tech companies that can move a lot faster than you. Um, so you've got to bring your advantages to the table and you've got to sort of understand how you channel those into the marketplace. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to be successful. So you, you've mentioned Walmart. So they started like in the early 2010s uh, or 2010s. Um, so how would you rate them today from a monopoly perspective? Have they managed to understand what you've just uh, um, said or are they still stuck within the old model? Because um, I remember reading some reviews about the Walmart marketplace, I think like last year, some articles that it's still very hard to become a listed merchant yep. um, on Walmart. It's a kind of a week long process where like within Amazon, you can do it like within, within a day or two days. And this comes with this kind of trade-off that Walmart obviously only wants to have merchants with like high quality brand fitting, whatever thing, whereas Amazon would say, doesn't matter, bring whatever you can sell and we take care. 
uh, Moffitt. So, so last ten years in, in a quick recap. So, have they have they closed the gap to Amazon? Um, they've certainly not at parity, but I think they've caught up a lot. So, I think I think I would give a lot of credit to Doug McMillan and the leadership at Walmart uh, for deciding they had to make a big bet here, which was the multi-billion-dollar acquisition of Jet.com, realizing that they were getting crushed and they had given Amazon effectively a 20-year head start. So like that, that's the context here is when you're talking about retailers and saying, you know, can re are retailers competing with Amazon? It's a little bit like saying, are book publishers competing with Amazon? Well, some of them are, but a lot of them aren't even here anymore because they got crushed over the last 20 years by Amazon. And then the ones that are have figured out how to survive, but certainly not the same way that they were doing, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And if you're Walmart and you've tried to do your own marketplace and it's failed, in 2016, they bought Jet.com. They kind of empowered, uh, you know, Mark Laurie and kind of put him the the owner uh, uh, head of Jet.com and put him in charge of their e-commerce. And I do think you saw a pretty quick impact. I think in the first year, first 12 months after that acquisition, for example, they went from about 10 million SKUs to 75 million SKUs um, on Walmart. So they 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 shifted in this direction where. Uh, they started to embrace marketplace. They went from, you know, since then to today, about a thousand third-party sellers to I think about 115 third-party sellers. Now, some context: Amazon in that time went from about two million to more than six million today. So they're definitely behind. But I think in terms of their share of e-commerce, where they were 10 years ago to where they are today, I would classify that as a uh, success story for Walmart. I think that they still could have gotten there faster. I think they have a long way to go, but you've got the CEO leaning in, which is an, a very important piece of this. And they are, uh, you know, over the last number of years, they have been catching up and they are kind of now number two uh, in this sort of e-commerce and digital marketplace space when they weren't even in the game, uh, you know, six, seven years ago. And, and you say that, um, to achieve this goal, the Jet.com acquisition was a smart thing because if you you can look uh, it the other way, you can say, okay, they've acquired it, but they're they're not using the domain anymore. It was uh, a big waste of money and time, so they, they could have done on their own better and faster and and cheaper. So that's the other way of viewing it. So what's your view here? I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I would take the other view, which is you are 20 years behind Amazon. You need to bring in talent and technology and also you know, the network relationships that Jet.com had established that takes you from that 10 to 75 million SKUs in a year. If you try to build that yourself, you're not getting that far in 12 months. Um, and I think that that's part of the challenge is it's not just it's not just technology that makes this happen. It's a business model shift, a mental model shift. And it's a shift in how you allocate resources and capital and time as an executive team. And it's very difficult to do that when you have a team that has basically operated one way for decades and been extremely successful and say, now we've got to do something completely different where we don't own all the assets. We've got to open the gates and you know let all the barbarians in that we think are our competitors and enable them. That's a very different mental model and business model. And very often you need a different team, different talent, different technology. You could argue that they overpaid for jet.com, that that was too much. They didn't get you know good value on it at the time. But I think that, that I would argue that it's been somewhat transformational for Walmart as a business and as a marketplace business. And that the, where they were in 2016, they really needed to do something like that to jumpstart because when they were trying to build it themselves, 
uh, you know, they were failing. So my, my question to people that are skeptics is, what would you tell Walmart to do? You know, if you can't buy Jet.com, okay, what do you do? Because you tried, you've been trying to build for, you know, years at this point and failing and not succeeding. You need to do something different. But today you would say they are succeeding because um, they're, I think they have, um, they grew their overall revenue on a very low digit uh, percentage basis year over year. Obviously there was some shift internally, like from brick and mortar into e-commerce. But this we have seen with other retailers and other mail order companies too. The, the only thing they have achieved when it comes to digital was um, lecturing their customers on not to buy mail order anymore in the catalog or brick and mortar anymore, but go to their own online shop, which is, that, that's not that's not really getting customers back uh, to Walmart because like the, the, the core issue still is that the old model is serving the needs uh, um, not at the scale as Amazon or other um, pure play retailers can do it. So um, yes, so from a top-down view, still a big company, still a very big e-commerce operations, but I would take the other side here um, and say it's still kind of a legacy business, which is uh, which is optimized around the Uh, um, uh, the big stores, uh, the whole assortment is built around the big stores and it's not focused on, on e-commerce and therefore they have a hard time on, um, on, on, on getting customers back that are now uh, buying on Amazon already. I, I think that's a fair criticism. I think that's part of the challenge and a big part of Walmart's e-commerce growth has been tied to the store. It's been grocery. That's one area, I think one of the few if not the only one where they are ahead of Amazon still in e-commerce revenue is in the grocery space. And a lot of that is click and collect. So that's tied to, you know, their store presence. Um, I think they have tried to shift. What, what was it? Just, just one short interruption. What, what is the click and collect uh, um, quota in uh, from like, let's say they are doing like 100 billions uh, online. What is then click and collect? Uh, quota from, um, from, from this? Do you uh, I think last year they did 48 billion Uh, online in the U.S. Um, from what I saw, and I think 75 billion kind of globally. And I think uh, in the mid, low to mid 30s was the click and collect. So it's a substantial part of their oh, volume. Okay. 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 Uh, okay. So, sorry for interrupting. Uh, yeah, what that is, you know, basically is what click and collect is, is basically you order online and you pick up at the store. Um, so it's really driving their, you know, you have a Walmart within kind of 10 miles of 90 something percent of the U.S. population. So they're leveraging that. But at the same time, you did see them post jet.com over the next few years actually start to close stores and slow the speed of Walmart expansion for physical stores and turn them into distribution centers. So there has been a shift toward embracing and enabling online. You've started them in the last year, seeing things like them. Uh, uh, opening up their e-commerce technology and starting to look at, can they license it to other retailers? Opening up their logistics and fulfillment operation and saying we can offer that as a service to other retailers. So you're seeing what I would call Amazon-like plays from Walmart, which would have been unthinkable five, six years ago. Um, I think there's, there's no sugarcoating it. They're still way behind Amazon, right? Uh, but they've caught up in a way that if you were looking at the company six years ago, you weren't thinking this was possible. You thought they were out of the game. Um, so I think that there's certainly not a modern monopoly uh, as a marketplace the way Amazon is. Amazon in the U.S. is kind of alone. Uh, you know, if you look at kind of a generalist retail, Amazon, we would say, is definitely a monopoly. 
Walmart is not that, but Walmart has definitely caught up uh, a lot over the last five years. Okay, let's focus on like one other, other example, uh, which is Best Buy. So uh, in the European markets, we have a company called Media Market. Um, the Media Market Saturn um, holding, which has a very hard time uh, um, competing with uh, with Amazon. Almost no um, consumer electronic retailers is able to um, play catch up. And I think um, three or four months ago, I've looked a bit more into the numbers of Best Buy and I was surprised. So they still were growing uh, the last years. They still earned money. And then I try to understand, okay, how can they do it? Because it's it's, it's really standard consumer electronics. Like 80% is, uh, is non-owned brands. So it's just brands that are selling everywhere. The website is uh, uh, was kind of underwhelming. They're still selling um, uh, some of their banner space to Google. So there was a Google AdSense uh, implementation. The marketplace part seemed to be rather weak. So how is that? possible was there kind of a turnaround regarding two monopolies yeah i think i think best buy went the other direction from walmart and said uh, i think this was around 2010 people were talking about like is best buy going to go bankrupt uh, you know is best buy going to be here we've seen you know are they the next circuit city or radio shack uh and since then they've turned it around and have become you know much more sustainable and successful over the number of the years. I think their stock price is up substantially, but you know, in addition to that, they're not yes. you know, hemorrhaging money that the way that they might have been years ago and shrinking and worried about, you know, is Amazon going to kill us? Uh, they've actually gone the other direction. Rather than kind of going into marketplace and making a big debt there, they've really gone heavily into services and sort of embracing the sort of in-person customer relationship, both in the store, but also in the home. Um, and and have been successful with that. I think today service revenue is about five percent of Best Buy's revenue, but it's also you know driving a lot of their you know in-person revenue or e-commerce revenue, where people then come to the store to pick up or have you come to their home to install it, um, you know, or set up the products that you're buying. So they they've gone a bit of a different direction and said we're really going to lean into the kind of physical presence of the store. We're not going to try to compete you know head to head with Amazon. We've seen others do that and get squashed. Um, and Amazon today, I think, has about 50% share in e-commerce, for example, of you know, electronics. So there, there, there's no arguing, I think, that they beat Amazon in e-commerce uh, in that sector. But they found a way to you know, survive and become a different company than they were 10, 15 years ago and to do okay doing that. But, but, but do you think this is... This is a solid um, strategic move because, yes, I understand where this service perspective comes from. You try to serve people that don't trust like the online delivery of their new TV. They want to have like a person they can speak to when there's some uh, uh, some things they need uh, to install. But that that seems to me like a dying market, right? So it's 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 nothing where I would say okay, like in 20 years from now, there's like many customers left. It's it's and Part of their growth comes obviously from the fact that many smaller uh, retail chains that focused yep. on consumer electronics di didn't make it. And, and, and those customers are now uh, finding their way into the Best Buy uh, uh, funnel. But, but, it, but it's, 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 it's not a super solid outlook from my point of view. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that you know, if you take a bit of a longer term view, uh, not necessarily the best position. And they're going to, I think, at a certain point, encounter this problem again. I think they found a, a solution for this generation uh, that has served them well. 
Um, but at the same time, mm. while doing that, they basically enabled or just said, ceded to Amazon that it can establish its monopoly in this space online. And at some point, they're going to need to compete in that space, right? And and you know, whether that's five years from now or 10 years from now, that is a definite long-term risk. If I look at Best Buy, um, another company that has done well in a similar attack is Home Depot, um, really leaning into, for example, the pro market. So, you know, contractors, um, you know, professionals in the sort of building material space, they've won heavily in that market. Um, they've also done well with kind of do-it-yourself consumers, and that's a lot around providing service. Um, similar kind of business model, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of the analysts over the last few years is, oh, is Home Depot, you know, uh, you know, it, resistant to Amazon? And I think the answer is, for now, yeah. But the, you know, as more and more online growth happens, does that stay the same way? I would be less confident. And I think we've seen a similar shift happen are happening now in the B2B space where a lot of, you have a lot of large distributors. So Amazon business has come into B2B over the last few years, going from nothing basically in, uh, I want to say 2016, 2017, to about 25 billion in revenue, uh, GMV uh, as of last year. And we would expect that to be much higher this time next year. Uh, and distributors are facing the same thing that retailers faced 10, 15 years ago. Do we do this? Uh, and try to compete with marketplace, or do we kind of seed and basically go into what they call value-added services? Uh, and and a lot are going the value-added services route. We kind of, okay, we do digitally enabled services. We're kind of giving up some of the commoditized stuff to you know, Amazon and things like industrial supplies or uh, uh, you know, medical supplies, food supplies, others, other areas that they're going into, um, auto parts. Um, and we're going to lean into the service component. But the question is, Okay, that makes you one that makes you a very different company than you have been for the last 15, 20 years. So your business model is going to shift. And then two is how sustainable is that? And I think that's a valid question. Okay, let's stay with the Home Depot uh, example for a moment before we are looking maybe in the B2B sector. So I understand that um, the do-it-yourself market wasn't, uh, was not the focus market for, um, for, for Amazon for the last 20 years, but um, and therefore, a Home Depot um, or some of the competitors um, had a good run when it came to e-commerce. What would you um, do as a Home Depot CEO today in order to prepare your business model to become a modern monopoly in that era, in, in that space? Yeah, I think I think it's a, a good question. I think it's tough if you're Home Depot to move and you know compete directly with Amazon. I think what you're starting to see them do is lean heavily into this pro and this B2B market. Um, and uh, you know, with that comes basically digital services. So how do you start to do things you know, with product data, um, you know, digital services around uh, you know, improving accuracy on delivery times, um, B2B payments um, is a big you know, innovation example we've seen over the last number of years and start to basically carve out a niche where Amazon isn't today. I think if you start to say, we're gonna go head to head and compete. I think the other good thing is that, you know, for them, the logistics uh, network of Amazon is really built around, you know, small widgets that fit in a box. And the stuff that Home Depot sells is not that. So they have a bit of a differentiated logistics capacity from what Amazon is today. Not to say Amazon couldn't do that. Certainly they could, but it would be an investment the same way they've had to go into food to say, you know, we can do building materials as Amazon. Um, so I think, I think that, that they've got a bit of a moat today. And I think you've got to capitalize on that and say, how do you start to do a lot more 
digitally and drive a lot more digital growth so that when this eventually starts to go more and more online as that generational shift happens, which will, uh, it will at some point, you are in the position to lead that and not let someone else come in. Because it might not be Amazon, it might be another tech company that comes in and does it. Someone's going to do it and you want to make sure you're at the forefront of it rather than letting it happen to you and kind of learn the lessons that you know other retailers have uh, suffered over the last 20 years and make sure that you're you're getting out ahead of this and embracing the disruption before someone else and does it comes and does it to you. Okay, but it's not like a It's not easy for Home Depot, you would uh, you would say. Okay, um, maybe let's look uh, for a moment to the B 2 B space. Do you see more potential in the, into in the B 2 B space? Because as you said, Amazon grew now to 25 billion, whatever. Though depends a bit on how you calculate the KPIs. So real B 2 B companies tend to say, no, it's much smaller, and it's like still small item business and office supply stuff. That's not really B 2 B. But but you know those arguments. So. Um, But they, they seem to have like a particular problem or challenge when it comes to real B2B, where the whole business model is different. Do you see more chances to create modern monopolies in a B2B uh, um, space because the competition is not uh, um, yet doomed by the Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think we, we see a lot of activity and a lot of successful tech companies coming out in these kind of vertical specific B2B marketplaces. Um, we, we, we do, uh, we put out last year and we'll soon put out a, the second edition of it, a top 50 kind of B2B marketplace ranking, uh, looking at the U S market. Um, and there's a number of marketplaces that are focused on specific verticals that are doing billions or in some cases, 10 billion plus, uh, in GMV, uh, and are doing very successful. And that's going to be very hard for Amazon to come into those markets because it doesn't fit the sort of Amazon user interface sale. Um, to Amazon's credit and Amazon business, they've done a lot sort of embracing how people buy. So integrating into ERP systems and punch out catalogs and you know, procurement systems and all, all these kinds of nuances of B2B that just aren't there in B2C, uh, you know, permissioning and uh, you know, setting up account systems so that you can allow different people to see you know, specific products where they order, depending on their department, all these kinds of nuances of how you manage B2B spend. And they've done a good job embracing that, but there's a much deeper level that you see these B2B marketplaces going into where they're not just facilitating the sale, but really you know, offering, in many cases, free or discounted software that helps you run your business and do it successfully. Um, and that has not historically been the Amazon model, and it's going to be tough for Amazon to get deep into some of these areas. So I think that that's one. I think number two is a lot of these uh, B2B markets like agriculture, like steel, like chemicals, um, you know, and in some cases, some of the bigger stuff in auto parts even don't really fit Amazon's logistics capacity. So it doesn't really fit where they've invested a lot. And in order for them to get into these spaces in a big way, they're going to need to make some strategic investments or potentially acquisitions, um, you know, which in the current regulatory environment may be hard for them to do. Um, so there, there's a bit of a moat there in the things that don't fit the Amazon model where you've seen them be successful has been things like office supplies, which is a huge part of it. It's been, uh, you know, industrial supplies, kind of small widgets and these things that, that, you know, the kind of Grangers of the world have historically sold. Uh, and, and, you know, in auto parts, for example, where they've really succeeded. And if you talk to people in the industry, it's, you know, accessories and kind of small parts, not, you know, big, heavy engine parts, hard parts, as they call them. Um, so I think, I think there, there is a bit of a moat there and there is an opportunity to say before Amazon gets here, because I expect they will, 
you have an opportunity to kind of figure out how you embrace the marketplace disruption yourself and not let it happen to you. Um, and I think if you don't, uh, you know, it's going to happen. It might just not be Amazon doing it. It might be, you know, one of these other tech companies that's, you know, VC funded and growing very quickly. Do you saw in, uh, since 2016, when you've published your book, other monopolies emerging that kind of surprised you where you would have said, okay, that, that's kind of an area where, I don't know, company A, B, C, D, E, uh, um, uh, should have taken the opportunity. Um, I, I think B2B is one of those spaces that it's accelerated a lot faster than if you'd asked me in 2016. I would, I would have thought, you know, if, if you were talking to me and you said, you know, a few years from now, there's going to be, you know, dozen plus kind of billion dollar GMV B2B marketplaces. These are industries that haven't changed very much for decades. In some cases, you know, some people in the industry would argue as much as a century. Uh, then, then, you know, to think that all this is going to happen in a few years, um, I wouldn't have expected that acceleration, but I think, uh, you know, Amazon getting into it so quickly woke a lot of people up. Um, and I think the last couple of years, you know, COVID and the, the sort of digital acceleration has pushed it even further where you've seen a lot of these marketplaces grow extremely fast and they've kind of pulled forward a few years of growth. Um, so I think, I think we're further ahead in the B2B space than I would have expected 2016. And I think that's going to be a a real battleground if you look particularly at marketplaces um, for the next kind of three to five years. When you're um, when you're working with companies, usually like these are like big corporates. Um, what is the biggest problem in order to transform their business model to be prepared to become a monopoly? Is it tech? Is it talent? Is it the orchard? Is it the um, cognitive capabilities of the uh, leadership? Uh, um, is it funding? So what, what what is really holding them back to become? Yeah, I think I think the honest answer is it's probably a a sort of a a pie of all of those things in one. Um, and the question is, okay, what's the biggest challenge? It's definitely not technology. Technology is not easy, but this is not an IT problem. This is a business, a fundamentally a business model problem. And what that means is that. You've got to enable it. You've got to have the right tech. So tech is the enabler. If you don't have the right tech, it won't work. You'll have a terrible user experience. You won't be able to, for example, you know, go to a multi-tenant environment, which is one of the you know the technical challenges for retailers going from single tenant, I'm the only one selling products to multi-tenant. But there are technical solutions out there that can help you solve that. And if you do that and you view this as an IT problem rather than a business model and a sort of core strategic problem, you're not going to succeed. Um, so really the number one thing that we would look for is one, you've got to have sort of it be driven from the top. This has to be a core priority of the CEO on down in order to say that this is something that's going to be successful. If you're, if you don't have that buy-in from the top, um, it's going to be very hard to drive change throughout the organization because it is all those things that you talked about. It's how you allocate capital. It's how you incentivize and reward your team. Uh, needs to shift to account for, okay, this new platform business model and how that fits alongside your core business. It's hiring new talent, absolutely, and people that have a kind of a different mental model for the strengths of the business. Uh, because if you've been in a business for decades and you've been very successful doing one thing, it's hard to ask that team to embrace something completely different and say, throw it all out the window. Now we're doing a different business model. Uh, so you absolutely need to bring in new talent. And that's one of the reasons that You know, when we look at things, we, we often say, don't build from scratch. It's too difficult to just build it yourself. You need a team that can own this. You need the right technology and uh, 
you know, you need, you need someone that really understands this business model to kind of be that leader in your organization and drive it alongside having buy-in from, you know, the CEO on down to say, great, we're going to give you the runway to go figure this out and, you know, make some mistakes and learn and grow because this is a new business model. This is different, but it's strategic and it's important. So we have to do it. And if you don't have that and you just view it as an IT problem and that this is just a technology challenge, it's very difficult to really succeed in that way because you're going to get too many blockers uh, in the organization to ever really be able to move quick enough and make progress. If you would have to make a bet uh, in the next 10 years, the new monopolies, the new digital leaders we will see, is the majority of them, uh, do they have like a, a retail or like a legacy DNA coming from existing corporate companies or the majority uh, um, rather like greenfield projects? Um, I think, oh, I think if you're going from a scenario, uh, you know, historically where the number has been closer to zero uh, than it has been 50-50. So I think you're going to start to see that balance shift back toward closer to 50-50. I don't think it'll be there uh, necessarily. I think you still got a leg up for VC funded companies, uh, you know, getting ahead of the game or the big tech monopolies like an Amazon because they're, they are organically thinking in this platform model. This is how they approach everything that they do. Um, and that's how they allocate resources. That's how they compensate their team. That's how they invest in technology. That's how they approach their customers and third-party sellers. Um, so I think, I think there's still an advantage there. I think you're starting to see the, the Titanic get steered, uh, so to speak, and, you know, turn the ship and you're going to start to see that go from, you know, zero, I would say maybe closer to 25%. Um, and I think, you know, you're going to see, uh, legacy companies or you know, traditional companies, um, start to embrace this. I think retail, that number is probably going to be still closer to closer to the zero number than to the 25% number. But I think in other industries like B2B, like other things, potentially like financial services, healthcare, um, it's not just going to be the tech monopolies and the, the, you know, the tech startups that are winning. I think there's a lot of industries where uh, you know, the, the traditional players are going to fight back and be successful. Um, and I think, you know, I think there are still opportunities in retail, by the way, if you look at some of these vertical specific marketplaces, things that are up and coming like streetwear, um, you know, shoes, StockX, Goat, these kind of niche marketplaces that Amazon isn't dominating that have kind of a differentiated value prop and differentiated network. I think there's opportunities if you're you know, a retailer and you kind of spot the right trend early to acquire something and grow it and become a marketplace player. Um, but I think if you're saying we're going to build this from scratch and grow it ourselves, I think it's very hard to see that succeeding. Okay, then my last question. So let's assume you would have been appointed CEO for Sears, a company that's not around um, anymore. So what have you uh, would have done differently? I think it, it probably depends on what point in time I was the CEO in Sears. Uh, and, and Ten years ago. I think, so I think 2012, Amazon was already uh, well underway in disruption. If I'm Sears... I think the challenge, uh, if I remember Sears, you know, that at that point in time is they have a fair amount of debt. Um, and you know, so I think that I think there's kind of two ways you could go. One is basically you you do a real estate asset sale and kind of wind down the business and say, you know, we're, we're going to waste a lot of money if we chase after this, which is kind of what's happened. Um, or the other would be, you know, we've really got to embrace marketplace and figure out a way to go into this. Because um, I think if you're Sears, you know, it's hard to see them succeeding with a services business model the way that Best Buy has, for example, um, given their kind of broader broader catalog um, than just sort of, for example, electronic products. 
So I think if you're Sears, you really got to embrace marketplace and kind of go all in on it the same way, by the way, Amazon did in the early 2000s when they said, we're no longer just a retailer, we're going to open it up, we're going to compete. I think the challenge is with Sears that you're not a tech first company in 2012. So you've got to be able to make a big investment. And I think it ultimately comes down to can you, you know, with your balance sheet in the state that's in, if I'm the CEO of Sears in 2012, can you get enough capital to actually do this and be successful and deploy it? Or is that a losing battle? And then you have to decide, how do I kind of unwind this as an asset uh, you know, over the next number of years? And what do I do that in a way to maximize the return to my investors? Um, I don't think it's an easy decision, but I think kind of taking the mixed middle road uh, is a good way to lose a lot of money, uh, as we've seen uh, in the interim, and not be successful ultimately. Okay, so even not easy for you, like 10 years uh, um, ago, because that's like, uh, we've also been involved like with Spryker and many like consultancy projects, but like uh, yelling, uh, yelling like uh, uh, towards like the gaming field, like from the from the sideline, that's easy um, doing it. That's uh, um, that's much harder. Um, I've learned now uh, uh, what's important and what are what are the uh, what are the factors that create modern monopolies. It's easy to to um, to uh, to um, isolate them. Uh, looking looking to how modern monopolies were created, it's much harder to use those factors to create new ones. So there might be new factors where a new book might be uh, uh, might be needed in the next years. Nick, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure to have Thanks you here in the podcast. Out.